Hello and welcome to the third episode of Regulatory Radio. Today we're discussing the drug development life cycle and highlighting some of the regulatory pathways available within the European system. Remember that for an overview of the European regulatory network and eligibility for the centralised procedure, please tune in to our earlier editions of Regulatory Radio. I'm Mick Lamble, Head of Regulatory Affairs at Freya. Today we're joined again by my colleague Gabriel Boronat, Director of Regulatory Information Management Strategy. Welcome back, Gabriel. How are you? Hello, Mick. I'm doing very well, thank you. So, Gabriel, today we're talking about the drug development life cycle. Can we start with an overview of the different stages involved in development of medicinal products? Sure. There isn't really a fixed definition of the drug development life cycle, and it's often represented as a linear process. I like to describe it as having distinct stages and that the life cycle is represented, well, cyclically. Broadly speaking, the typical stages that we imagine are discovery, preclinical or non-clinical research, clinical development, regulatory review, and safety monitoring. Thanks for that. And what are some of the key activities at each stage? Okay, so the life cycle starts with discovery. This is often laboratory-based work to identify and research new possible medicines. Drug discovery can also be prompted by new insights into existing medicinal products. The second stage is preclinical research. This is where the safety of new products starts to be assessed, and it usually involves both lab-based testing, in vitro, and some animal testing, in vivo. This is an important gateway to deciding whether a new product can progress to the next stage, clinical development. So presumably clinical development is where we start seeing clinical trials being conducted. That's correct. Stage three is clinical development, which includes small-scale trials to develop further the understanding of safety and dosing. So-called phase one trials. One of the goals is to study human pharmacology in relation to the new drug under development. This will be followed by phase two trials, larger in terms of participation, and which seek to establish an understanding of the efficacy of the drug and to identify possible side effects as part of therapeutic exploration. Okay, and how about phase three trials? Phase three clinical trials are aiming to provide therapeutic confirmation, further develop the understanding of both efficacy and safety. Participation in phase three trials is more significant in terms of numbers of patients. From perhaps tens of participants in phase one trials, maybe hundreds of participants in phase two trials, whereas there could well be thousands of participants at phase three. And how about phase four trials? I understand these are an important phase for confirming the safety of medicines for patients. Correct. There are phase four clinical trials, which perhaps will be conducted after a product has been awarded marketing authorization or maybe a conditional authorization. These sorts of post-authorization studies could be usefully explored in a future episode that addresses the whole bunch of post-authorization topics. And then beyond the clinical development phase, we have the regulatory review. Yes, a medicinal product for which a sponsor is confident that both safety and efficacy have been demonstrated can then be submitted for a formal review that could lead to a regulatory approval and granting of a marketing authorization. For certain medicines that address certain therapeutic areas under the EU system, this could mean, for example, an application for marketing authorization under the centralized procedure. This regulatory review phase encompasses assessments of all relevant clinical studies, the details of manufacturing, product quality, verification of compliance with guidelines for best practice, details of proposed packaging, product information, 
all factors which lead to a scientific opinion being developed regarding the safety and efficacy of the new product. So it's this opinion which is then used to make the decision about granting a marketing authorization. Pretty much, yes. In the European system, a positive opinion from a national procedure will lead to a national marketing authorization, and a positive opinion from a centralized procedure will provide a very strong case for the European Commission to grant a centralized marketing authorization. And how about the role scientific advice plays in all of this? So early engagement to provide scientific advice can inform the product development program and help prepare for regulatory submission. This is especially relevant where no current regulatory guidelines are available. Agreements on product development strategies can be established between the sponsor and the health authority, typically the EMA. Note that this is not seen as pre-evaluation of a product's potential regulatory submission. Scientific advice from the EMA is also chargeable, although fee waivers are available in certain circumstances, for example, for an orphan medicinal product. And how about the development of medicines for children and any specific EU paediatric regulations? So, correct. The, the improvements to child health in Europe are supported by increasing the development and availability of medicines specifically for children. And that definition of children covers those patients aged under 18. The regulation from 2006 aims to ensure that medicines for use in children are authorised appropriately, but without subjecting children to unnecessary clinical trials or delaying the authorisation for use in adults. The paediatric regulation has introduced an obligation to study medicinal products in children via what's known as a, a paediatric investigation plan or a PIP, or perhaps through the provision of a PIP waiver. These are required for products applying for new marketing authorization or extensions of indications or new pharmaceutical forms. And how are paediatric products integrated within the development life cycle? Well, the initial PIP agreement would be established at the start of phase two trials with PIP-specific amendments made as development progresses through Phase 2, exploratory, and Phase 3, confirmatory trials. Then, by the time that the marketing authorization application is made, that is also when PIP compliance or deferral or a waiver would also be confirmed. Thanks for that, Gabriel. And could we now go into orphan products in a little bit more detail? Sure. So the EU orphan regulation is designed to support the development and availability of medicines for patients with the rare diseases. Specific criteria are used to establish an orphan designation. Firstly, the product must be intended for a treatment, prevention or diagnosis of a disease that is life-threatening or chronically debilitating. Secondly, the prevalence of patients must be less than 5 in 10,000 of the EU population or would otherwise be unlikely to generate sufficient revenue to justify the development cost. And thirdly, no satisfactory method exists already for diagnosis, prevention or treatment of the condition or if such a method exists already, the new product under development must offer significant benefits to patients over and above the benefits of the existing authorised products or methods. So does orphan designation then also confer marketing authorization on a development product? No, the sequence is clear. Designation of orphan status is provided before marketing authorization. Understood, thank you. Could you now describe the regulatory provisions for advanced therapies? Well, the same principles that cover the existing legislation on human medicines also apply to advanced therapy medicinal products, or ATMPs. A defined regulatory procedure for marketing authorization review, the requirement to demonstrate quality, safety and efficacy, and the need to provide post-authorization vigilance. Note that the EU centralised procedure is mandatory for ATMPs. 
This means that applications must first be reviewed by the Committee for Advanced Therapies, CAT. It is the responsibility of the CAT to draft initial regulatory and scientific opinions prior to final CHMP review and approval. So just to be clear then, which products can qualify as ATMPs? Stated simply, the definition of ATMP includes medicines for human use that are based on genes, tissues or cells. The scientific criteria for classification of an ATMP include gene therapy products, somatic cell therapy products, tissue engineered products or combination ATMPs. I think an episode dedicated in future to ATMPs and the exciting innovations they bring would make for an interesting topic. Many thanks, Gabriel. That was a very helpful tour around some highlights of the different European regulatory authorization procedures. Thanks, Mick. My pleasure. I hope it was useful. And after this informative session highlighting key points on the role of the EMRN in achieving regulatory approvals, stay tuned for another episode on Regulatory Radio where we discuss further regulatory topics. And that brings us to the end of this episode on Regulatory Radio. Thanks for listening and see you next time.